0: Welcome to the Tour on Air Podcast. I'm Nico, the founder of Tech Open Air. At TOR, our mission is to help people, organizations, and the planet become future-proof. Our T stands for technology, but it is not features, but the relationship between technology, work, and life that we seek to explore. And we'll give you context around the latest trends so you can make better decisions moving forward. Excited to now present you the following conversation I had with Pia Mancini co-founder of Democracy Earth and The Open Collective. Kia has an Argentinian-style passion for all things democracy, open, liquid democracy. Her work has led her to start her own political party, become a YC founder, a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and most recently, she founded a for-profit company with a deep mission called The Open Collective. Open Collective is a technology platform that empowers open source projects to raise funding. There were many routes to take for me in this conversation, and I had to keep myself from going down the rabbit hole once again. So we covered many points instead, focusing on Pia's learnings as a political campaigner, turned activist, turned entrepreneur, turned mother, turned founder again. Don't let the label label you. Pia gave deeper insights into why she believes that the nation state has no future and how nations are fighting that. She's a truly inspiring founder And the conversation left me hopeful for how technology and blockchain technology specifically will lead to a world with more direct citizen participation and our own identities becoming less about our national heritage. This way, we may actually tackle the big challenges we all share. I hope you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi, this is Nico again with another episode of the Tour On Air podcast, and today I'm joined by Pia Mancini, and I'm very excited to be talking about a broad spectrum um, of uh, topics within the realm of, um, you know, liquid democracy, open democracy, e-government, and so forth. Pia is the founder of Democracy Earth and the Open Collective, um, originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina, but now in beautiful Madrid, Spain. Welcome on the show, Pia. (laughs)
1: <laughs> Thank you, Nico. Thank you for having me.
0: So I would say as an introduction, always interesting to see kind of like how you actually got to the space that you're operating in. Right. Maybe talk us through a little bit of some of the early life decisions you made when you were carving out your own path into sort of your professional career. Um, you worked at uh, the city government of Buenos Aires, um, I think at a very early time in your career. So how did you get interested in, uh, you know, sort of all these government uh, topics that are maybe not um, of everybody's interest at an early age?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I wonder why. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I come from a family that was very, always very interested in politics. Argentina in itself is already a very political country, right? Everyone has an opinion about everything, about football and about politics. That's just how it goes. Um, but then my family in particular was also very kind of, um, you know, interested in current affairs and, and politics. And my mother, when she was young, she was also kind of, you know, um, very interested and, and, I don't know, today we would call, it an, we would call her an activist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my dad is quite, quite conservative. And so I was confronting with him at a very early age And so already in school, like I was interested in kind of the, I guess, more broad social, um, sciences or social aspect of, um, for my career. I was, that was always kind of the, the, I knew that that's what I wanted. And so I started working, I was very lucky. I was very fortunate and and I was able to do a lot of unpaid work when I was, when I was young, because my parents were able to kind of support me through that. And, um, and I went into political science um, in university against my father's wishes who wanted me to go into economics or something useful, right? Um, and I started working um, very, very early on doing you know internships and, and, and things like that. And then I started just getting paid for the work that I was doing. And I worked in every aspect, I guess, of the political landscape. I did... God, leadership training, like leaders for democracy. I did non for profits. I did transparency think tanks. Worked for government campaign managed, um, and that's when when I was campaign managing. Um, that's when I went like, more heavily into politics from political party elections, kind of, and not just from theoretical or or consultancy.
0: When you felt the adrenaline
1: absolutely and <laughs> and it was great like the way I'm wired, campaigning is a really good fit for me, maybe not now anymore because I'm like a bit you know I'm a mother and older, but when I was younger, um just that like working really hard with a group of people to achieve something super concrete um for a short period of time, like twenty four seven full revolutions. Uh, was great for me because then after a while it's done and you get to kind of till mm-hmm. right. That's obviously not sustainable, but for like you know a certain period of time, like, I was I was really good at that and it was very energizing and I had a lot of fun and I got the opportunity to talk with people, you know, in all from all walks of of life in all different spaces, from presidents to you know grassroots organizers and folks living in shanty towns and I was able to create connections with all of them and so that was very useful for me in my in my work like I and I felt very comfortable doing that and so I kept kind of pushing forward with getting deeper and deeper in the democracy and and political space.
0: And I read you were a co-founder also of a party? Yes, Partido de la Red, the Net Party.
1: Yes, the Net Party.
0: Is that something like the the Pirates in Germany? Have you heard of the Piraten?
1: Yeah, I I've heard of them, and we were kind of you know quite I don't know inspired in a way by by their work. We started working, I guess, more active in the political landscape in in Buenos Aires in 2011, 2012, mm-hmm. and so it's kind of that same you know, birth space, right. Occupy, the Green Revolution in Iran, the different Arab Spring movements, Movimiento 15M, the students in Chile, like that's where I come from. That's kind of the the political, I guess, era or moments that defined, you know, my choices in life. And the Pirate Party was a big part of that, right, undeniably. And so we wanted to do, we felt it was very stupid that we couldn't engage more in the decision-making process in politics when we had the tools to do it. But the reason we weren't participating is because we had, you know, a type of a set of political institutions that we've inherited that were designed for a different era, for a different society, with different conditions, and institutions do not pop up in the void. They respond to a society uh, communication technology, a education level, and we are still being governed by the institutions that we're creating for a, for a society that is absolutely different to this one, right? And we were very, we thought it was very unfair that we couldn't engage more in the decision-making process. We, we were thinking a lot about participatory politics, participatory democracy, how to bring democracy to the 21st century. And so... We built this platform called Democracy OS. It's an open source decision-making platform that was conceived for citizens to be able to participate in legislative process and legislative decisions. So they could vote. So the first thing they could do was kind of read and read a translated version, so an, an explained version of what piece of legislation was being discussed, right? Because legislations today or the political corporation uses a lot of legal, judiciary, very specific jargon to make it impossible for anyone else to understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's part of the mechanism that that the system has to push people out, right. Constantly Mm -hmm. you're either in the, you know, like gatekeeper style, the church used to do the same, like it's not, I mean, it's a mechanism that is common. And so we would translate legislation and then folks could vote how they would they wanted their representatives to vote, and so that was democracy o s that it was very much inspired in the pirate party's uh, liquid democracy tool we originally we wanted to adapt it, but it was just documentation was in german I, it was just it was just hard to reach out to those um to those guys I think they were like quite jaded by, by, by then or, or had internal issues. Anyway, so we built Democracy OS and then we built the political party. Like the political party was a wrapper around the tool. Like what matter was the tool, right? What matter was this space for citizen engagement. The, the party was just the vehicle we needed because again, the political corporation only understands political parties. They, they can't deal with anything else um, just because of how the system is set up. And so when we started offering Democracy OS to other political parties, they were like, yes, no, go outside, you know, play somewhere else. And so we did the Net Party. And, and the Net Party was this political party that had Democracy OS at the center, right? So it was, it was an open source political party, everything you could download and replicate in other countries. You had a kit to download, logo, um, you know, manifesto, tech, whatever, like the whole thing you could just copy-paste. Or like fork and, and doing your own language. So the Nat Party, we run for elections with this idea that we were going to use um, democracy as to make decisions, mm-hmm. right? We weren't going to vote in Congress what we felt like, or even what we genuinely were convinced that we were going to respect kind of the citizens kind of consensus, I guess, on the platform.
0: And is that something that you then kind of wanted to? Was was that for you? Kind of like an idea you wanted out and others to run with, you know, or was it something where you also wanted to kind of have your own political ambitions uh, kind of empowered
1: by? That's a good question, and no one really tells you what happens to you when you are mm. like flirting with power, and and it's it's awful. It's really it's really appalling. So it was a mix, really. Mm. The party, the way the system works in Argentina it's a little bit like like the german system that, but it's not mixed it's just mm-hmm. proportional right mm-hmm. so y- you have lists of candidates and then you get as many candid- you know candidates based on the percentage of, vote- of mm-hmm. votes that you got and so it was a list of people so it was a, it, it, it was a mixed kind of i guess host um some people some of the of the the party members they they had tried to be to Um, get elected before or they were part of another party before and they were disenchanted or some some of them had been like legislators in the past and they were like you know they came back years later saying you know trying to support this new path of doing things Mm -hmm. others um like me we didn't particularly have any political ambitions per se, at least not in Congress, like I, I wanted to do foreign office, for example, like definitely not Congress, um, but it was, you know, it was a path forward. And then, then, you know, a lot of egos involved, so a lot of egos to manage. Look, I don't know, I have mixed feelings, like we, we almost got a, a seat in Congress. I guess I am, I am glad we didn't and I am a, I'm also sad we didn't, right? I think it would have been like amazing to see to see the whole experiment through. I think it would have been game changing. But also, I don't think I was up for being four years in or more in Parliament. I don't think that's what I wanted for for my life. So it was a bit of a bet.
0: So you decided to move on um from the party, correct? Is the party something that kind of stuck around? Is it um, still in existence?
1: Yep, yeah, the party is still in existence. Um, they run for elections without me um, and without my Santi, who's my partner, who was also a candidate, I think two more times um, in combination with other parties. I mean, it's still around, but it's, not, it's definitely not running for elections mm-hmm. um, at the moment.
0: And then you kind of went on and I've, you know, trying to connect the dots sort of, you know, what led you to to uh, then Democracy Earth and and the Open Collective uh, and platform. But like, I mean, once you tell us about Open Collective, you know, the, a platform that now allows open source projects to collect and spend money, um, basically. I mean, you know, the, you know, let's say the investigative, you know, uh, journalistic part of me would, would be saying like, you know how did she get from the party to that? Like, was it a kind of follow the money type of situation um, where you thought you you needed to be closer, maybe to actually streams of capital in order to have your technology be you know adopted or you know faster executed?
1: I never thought of it like that. So what happened was that after the election, I can't remember if after or before the election, we saw that definitely before the election, we saw democracy OS being used in Tunisia to Mm -hmm. debate the constitution without us even having anything to do about it, right? Someone, you know, these folks from iWatch just Googled voting mechanism, democracy OS popped up, they forked it, they translated it to French and Arabic and they were using it. And so for me, that was very eye-opening. Like I realized that it wasn't, we had been playing at a local level in Buenos Aires, and that w- that was that was great. I think that there is a role for that, but there is also a role for when you see the same language and the same metaphors and the same use of technology emerging in places so diverse as like Tunis and Buenos Aires, and from there, like you know, countless, you can see how there is something happening that is like a lot bigger than the city of Buenos Aires, right? And so I wanted to play that game. I wanted to do something that was global. And not because it had to do with getting funding for that, but because in the same way that I believe that our democratic institutions are not suited for the 21st century, I think nation states are are an artifact of the past, right? I think that the fact that our territory is now the vector, is still today the vector that organizes power and organizes our citizenship, it, it just blows my mind, right? In a world connected as ours, the fact that we still believe in, in these borders and the fact that the nation state is like the all-encompassing political unit, for me, it's something that I wanted to, to start building around, something that I wanted to, you know, to start pushing the limits of what we understand is possible today. And so I, I wanted to operate at a global scale because I think that that's where that's the next jurisdiction, that's the next frontier in terms of where we're going to act as citizens. I also think that it's unbelievably unfair that having a voice is an accident of where you are born, right? The fact that you and me are lucky enough and privileged enough to actually have a voice in this world because we were born in territories that don't have, that have democratic governments or you know, as democratic as they can. Um, but someone who's born on the other side of the border that is not as privileged as we are, doesn't have a voice, in the 21st century, I think that's unacceptable. And so that took us to, you know, that's that's the birth of Democracy Earth. And Democracy Earth then, before I want to also
0: get back to, you know, that idea of like, you know, organizing power and, you know, looking at, you know, what you believe, you know, is the right framework for that. So Democracy Earth then, launched the open collective or was it something that led to yeah
1: so democracy earth was then invited to y combinator in 2014 2015 mm-hmm. Um so we did yc in silicon valley mm-hmm. and um, we raised some funds there so democracy earth is a non-for-profit and we worked on on building alternative systems, essentially. Instead of focusing on how do we change the existing system by building a political party and playing the game, we wanted to focus on what would it look like to build an alternative system that make, makes this one of old, obsolete, right? And Democracy Earth started thinking about that, right? What are global democratic institutions? What do they look like? How do they feel? Like, what do we need to think? What, does, what identity do we need if we're thinking of global democracy? Right? How do we even manage like identity outside of the nation state? Right? So who's giving you identity today? That's not the nation state. The corporations, right? So in this kind of fight between the land and the cloud, where do we sit? What does the network see? Like what solutions can we provide? So that was democracy earth, and so we we ran with those ideas for a while. We we wanted We had this kind of mix of working with local politics in the U.S. but also kind of thinking globally and. Things started to create a bit of dissonance in in my brain, and then I got pregnant during YC. I was there with with Santi, with my husband, and so when I got pregnant, I I wanted to take a step back from. At that stage, I had done a TED Talk that was very popular, so I was like doing a lot of podcasts and interviews and TV shows, and and I was like, I need I need to take a step back from all of this. Um, I also thought it was utterly impossible to work with my husband and. Have a child with him it's like this is not gonna work so i i'm gonna take a step back from democracy earth <laughs> because i'm gonna kill you and it's not healthy for me or for a future daughter so um i stopped working on democracy Earth. i was still on the board and obviously you know i'm still a big part of of what's happening there but i wanted something that was i needed something that was my own and so that's when open collective started i it was like, I guess, October, late October in 2015. And this friend of mine, Xavier Daman, oh, Xavier Daman, who I met through the World Economic Forum in Dubai. He's like, I'm in San Francisco, you know, let's meet. And I'm like, okay, great. And he's like, he had just sold a company called Storyfy. I don't know if you remember, like a Twitter threading company, very, very early on kind of Twitter stuff. He had just sold Storyfy. He was looking for his next thing. He met up with me and he's like, I want to do something with you. What are you doing now? And I'm like, I'm nine months pregnant. So what, what do you think I'm doing? <laughs> like, take a wild guess, my <laughs> darling. And, um, and so he's like, oh, I, I've been thinking about this, this problem that communities around the world, you know, they can't get um, funding because, you know, we had this problem where we were doing, I don't know what, the startup manifesto in Belgium. And we need to pay for stickers and no one wanted to put their own bank account. Oh, how could it be that, you know, in order to receive money, you need to incorporate, you know, I don't want to be the president of anything. This is a movement. And I'm like, the same thing happened to me in Argentina with the Net Party. We couldn't raise funds, campaign money because the government didn't allow, you know, our legal entity And so we couldn't receive any money because the bank wouldn't obviously open a bank account without a legal entity. And that is so unfair, right? It's unfair on communities. And so we started Open Collective, which is, it is solving that problem. Open Collective sets out to solve how communities around the world can get funding, raise and spend money transparently without needing to become something they're not, without needing their own legal entity or their own bank account
0: to do it. And how do you circumvent that?
1: Yeah, so so we use um, a combination of, uh, it's a two-part solution. We have an open finances platform that is opencollective.com where you can create your collective. So you have that kind of organizational structure. And then that is paired with a global network of legal entities that become custodials of the funds for those communities. Mm -hmm. So it's like fiscal sponsorship as a service. Mm -hmm. Fiscal sponsorship is a very... American, as in United States, concept. Um, it doesn't really exist around the world, and it has never been used at the scale that Open Collective uses it. Like we, we are, you know, really pushing the limits on on what fiscal sponsorship is like was built for. And so now we have a network of over three hundred non for profits around the world that give support, and by support I mean they they kind of lend their bank account and um, they give fiscal sponsorship to. I don't know, thousands and thousands of like tens of thousands of communities around the world. So, the open source is like one of the communities that we serve the most. We have a non for profit that is called the Open Source Collective that I created and that it gives fiscal sponsorship. So, it's the custodial of the funds of over 3,000 open source projects, right, around the world. So, you know, Google wants to give money to a project that they're using because they're working in the I don't know in a framework that they're using yeah. or they're you know they're developing tools for chromium whatever it is they can't send money from a corporation in the United States or anywhere else really to a PayPal account in Ukraine like for Google it, that, that is a nightmare yeah. right and so they turn around they give the open source collective they have a fund with us a multi million dollar fund and then we turn around and we disperse all the money because we fiscal sponsor all of these projects so like that we have 300 of those examples. Incredible. I, I was
0: th- never aware of that. Is that a, um, I mean, you know, that, that kind of fiscal sponsorship model in general, is that a function of kind of the Googles of this world having also very administrative process in, you know, having vendors um, identified? Um, or is it really also, you know, legal implications? Like you you were saying, you weren't actually able to create an entity in Argentina and does that happen a lot around the world? And what are the reasons for it, you know, for, for an open source, you know, project or, or I guess, a charity to, to create their own entity?
1: Well, an open source project is someone in New York, someone in Ukraine, someone in Bangladesh, someone in, you know, wherever. Yeah. Like, we collaborate in the, the way we work has mm-hmm. radically changed. The way we do activism changed. The way we organize changed. But the financial system only understands corporations. All the individual, right? They understand corporations, whether they're for-profit or non-profit. But the mindset is you are incorporated in a territory, right? You have a hierarchical structure. You have someone who has the signature of the bank account, essentially. You have either equity or ownership of some sort. You have quite complex transitional processes. And most importantly, you're somewhere in the world. And you operate in a scarcity-driven economy. So, for example, corporations can't make gifts to one another. There's no such thing as a company making a donation to another company that doesn't doesn't compute, right? Because that's that's not how the system understands. Or they understand the individual. What the system does not understand is a group of people that come together, they have a shared purpose, Mm -hmm. a shared mission, but they don't want to become something they're not. A, because it's impossible for them to incorporate in a territory because they're scattered around the world which is most of today's global movements, or B, even if you are in the same space, think about a mutual aid group, right? Right now in New York, it's a hotbed for mutual aid groups. I have so many of them on the platform and they're people just coming together, supporting each other, pulling money to support their neighbors in times of COVID, right? The IRS will give you a charity status in like two years, but that person is going to get evicted today, right? And so... So what these groups used to resort to is Mm -hmm. someone putting their own bank account for it. Right. So it's like, we're a neighborhood, you know, let's put money together. Okay. uh, You can use my bank account, but then it's complicated for the person that receives the money um, can have huge tax implications. There's also a trust issue. Right. And so, so what we do is we're like, Do not worry about that. We'll abstract out all of the complexity of dealing with this clunky and old operating system that is designed for a different era. You just focus on your impact. You focus on on what you have to do. So, I guess going back to your original question, Nico, of joining the dots, I think it has to do with that. It has to do with building alternative systems, but without fighting nation states anymore, like I used to with politics, without trying to go against or, or trying to rewire. It's more about building around it. What structures can we build around them? Like, how can we push the system in a way where, okay, fine, whatever, this is how you understand things. We'll just, you know, we'll just let you be, but we're going to build all of this somewhere else. So that's, that's what kind of guides me, I guess, or, or yeah, the thread is like, how do, how do we make existing institutions obsolete?
0: It's like you're updating the rails of the kind of uh, of the system, right? Of the infrastructure, you know. And and rails being a word, of course, often used in in the blockchain and, and crypto world, you know. That begs me to ask, of course, like in in what way do you see you know um, you know DAOs and you know blockchain crypto playing a role in this um, today for you and in in the future? Because wouldn't that be the ultimate technology also to further that goal?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Democracy Earth in itself is very much embedded in that space. They created proof of humanity. They have the the UBI token, the proof of humanity DAO.
0: Can you tell us a little about the proof of humanity?
1: Yeah, so proof of humanity is... So going back to what I was saying before about global democratic institutions, one of the, the main problems that you need to solve for is how do you validate identity, right? How do you... And this is something that... With Democracy OS, we also learned the hard way. How do you prevent civil attacks, right? Civil attacks being people with multiple, like the same person creating yeah. multiple identities to vote. And it's a really, really, really difficult problem to solve in, in distributed uh, decentralized networks. It's very difficult. It's, it's difficult because you don't have a central authority that is going to give you your credentials, right? The yeah. way that nation states solve for civil attacks in elections is that you have your government-issued ID. Right. Or if you log in with Facebook, then Facebook tells you you've already used this login, you can't have multiple Facebook accounts, whatever it's. And so when you don't have a central authority, it's very difficult to validate identity. So proof of humanity kind of it's it's an attempt to create a first, like a base layer for a global identity, which is at least certifying that an address in Ethereum, in the Ethereum blockchain is a human. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it has an, an app that you upload a video of you saying, my name is Pia Mantini and I certify that I'm a human and I certify that I don't have a registry in this um, register already. Yeah. And then you read the Ethereum address. You have to show the Ethereum address that you linked to that profile. Right. So. And you stake, you stake something that is, I can't remember exactly what it is, but like, let's say $500 in Ethereum or something like that, right? So that's your stake. And then a lot of people. So someone in your network vouches for you, right? And says like, yeah, I know Pia, this is her, you know, and, and, and you vouch. And then once someone vouches for you, then you have a period of challenge. And that's where a lot of people try to challenge your profile because then they keep your stake. Right. So they try to say, you know, this is a deep fake and they yep. prove this or, and so the challenge goes to a distributed court, Kleros, and then it goes to the Kleros jurors and they, they have to say if the challenge, you know, has its right or not.
0: Validate. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Validate. Exactly. And so if you lose, you lose the money. And then if the challenger loses, they lose the gas they used for the challenge. Um, and so right now there's about 10,000 strong, maybe 12,000. Um, humans so it's 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 that base layer right it's like that first moment where you say if we ever need to come together as humans regardless of my name where i am in the world you know just the fact that we are humans Mm -hmm. allows us to participate then you can use proof of humanity already which is amazing right because and that's what what the UBI token is using. Yeah. So once you get validated as a human, you start accruing UBI.
0: Yeah. Yeah, which, which makes total sense to not have multiple wallet addresses, right? And be able to participate multiple times in a UBI project, for example. Fascinating. And for you in now your you know open collective, is, is blockchain already uh, on the roadmap or already
1: integrated? So blockchain, no. Like we do receive crypto for projects and things like that. I don't know. I've been coming and going with this for so many years. Like I think I did, you know, two bull bull cycles. (laughs) Every time there's a bull market, you know, the same question comes back: like, why aren't you doing crypto? And then the bear market comes, and they leave me alone for a little while. And um, I think it's something that for me, it's the future. Clearly, like we've been, you know invested in, in in crypto, we we use it, we you know we've done a gazillion things with that. And I think those are the future. I think that there's like a huge gap still between that world and everyone else who needs money today. And so I guess it's about figuring out the right time for this to make sense. Like today, just to give you an idea, the type of problems that some users of the platform have is that They can't understand how to use a PayPal account to receive a donation. Mm -hmm. Right. So we were talking to uh, an organizer the other day, and he he called this like a digital apartheid, which I thought it was a very interesting concept, right? It's like, you know, and even open collective that we, we work so hard to be, you know, as easy and inclusive and you know, low-tech as possible, we are so high-tech still. Sure. And, and it makes sense, right? Because, you know, that's how you do things fast. You, that's how you organize. That's how we can actually host thousands of projects. Otherwise, it would be impossible for us to have, you know, a manual process for this. But at the same time, like, we can't leave a lot of people behind. There's always going to be folks that are, are not coming into new systems, and that is something that we all need to live with. But I think that's still the gap between this and DAOs is huge. It's just too big still. Like usability, um, understanding, it's just, it's not there yet. You know, I've talked with many projects like Colony or Gitcoin or Maker to have like DAOs for the collectives. And I think I want to do this. It's just not there yet. Like yeah. it's just...
0: Ideally, I guess it it is at a stage where those using it don't even realize they're using that technology right it is it is you know like we don't know uh, that smtp you know is empowering our email and it it just works um and we don't really care that much even as a user maybe but the functionality um is there so i wanna spend the last minutes you know one Going again a little bit, you know, back to the the macro, which I thought was, you know, interesting, you know, your, um, you know, idea of, you know, kind of empowering or, or having a power structure on a very macro level, sort of multilateral, you know, above kind of the nation state. Is that like, you know, I guess for like the large challenges that we face as humanity? And do you see that then paired with very local decision making and regional decision making? When it comes to you know a lot of the things that um, you know citizens are in- impacted uh, with on a daily basis.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you're yeah right on the money. I think that I'm reading the signals correctly, which mm-hmm. I might not be. Um, if, but if I if I'm reading the signals correctly, I think that the world is going to go towards above nation states, and mm-hmm. we're going to kind of have. A new jurisdiction that is global, that it's planetary, where we can come together as peers, that we share a commons and that commons is our planet and we have agency at that level. And then it's going to go down to um, city level. Right. Where we have a different type of agency. Right. And we are much more involved in day to day decision making process. I think the the nation state that it's like sandwiched in the middle is going to start disappearing. Um,
0: It's disintermediated like every other middleman.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And look, we still I think that we still need some and we'll still see some or like most of the capabilities still, especially until... Um, distributed generation of energy is actually it's it's a thing, right? If we still have extractive industries and and that's what powers our grid mm-hmm. um, at at that like national level, I think that the nation state will still have power. But if you think about it, like you have collectives that can mm-hmm. issue their own their own currency. Right. So the nation state already lost one of its biggest monopoly that it was that they could own they and only they could mint a currency, right? And force it down the throats of their citizens. Again, I'm from Argentina, you know, you, you know how it feels. And um, and so, but the nation states now now lost the monopoly on issuing currencies. And this is something that cost them a lot, in, not only in terms of um In terms of taxes, which is only going to grow, like what is costing them in terms of of taxes, but also in terms of like an intangible soft power, Mm -hmm. right? The currency and the territory and the nation, they all kind of, they were the tools that nation states used to become the default kind of vector right like the idea of the nation is tied with the idea of a currency that's that's how they justify themselves if you want that's how we justify being different from those across a fictional border from the other side of the mountain right So it's language so vernacular languages so um languages currency like you know that's the nation that's part of like the excuse i guess the narrative they this, the nation-state's built you know, that's one thing, that one pillar that I think is dropping. Another issue is that issues are not national anymore. They're yep. global. It doesn't matter. Like, pick an issue. Like, it doesn't matter. They're, they're, they're all global issues. Like, the challenges of our generation are not going to be solved by nations. That's yep. for sure. Like, we know that. Y- you, me, We know that, right? And it doesn't matter what they think because it's not about them it's about like the huge challenges have to do with you know pandemics uh climate change it's global right so they're less important they don't matter uh, and you saw this when trump pulled out of the paris accord right the climate uh, yeah. paris accord like what 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 you saw like next was a whole group of universities, cities, companies saying, like, we don't care if Trump pulls out of the accord. We're still going to do our, our, you know, we're still going to honor those commitments because yeah. it doesn't matter what Trump decides. And yeah. that was a huge blow also to kind of nation states. Of course, there's a lot of pushback at the moment because progress works like that. It's push and pushback, right? So we are seeing now, like, a big rise in nationalisms, but it's a reaction towards, it's a reaction to the decay that they're seeing. Right. So they need to kind of push
0: harder. So would you say also, you know, when you see kind of losing interest in, you know, organizations like the WHO or, you know, the European Union, you know, do you see like or better? Like, I, I think the the part of like, you know, local, uh, you know, e-government and participation on a local level, I, I think on somewhat on a good track, um, relatively speaking, Um but like when it comes to this kind of multilateral, you know, global cooperation around topics, it really does seem like um, we took a step back um, in the last years.
1: So we took a step back because nation states are pushing for that. But mm. I think that if you think about nation states, like we as citizens are much more, I think, aware than ever that we can act as citizens in the world and mm. not as Argentinians or Germans, right? Um, I think that mentality has changed and the internet really helped with that kind of intercitizenships, right? with that kind of multiple identities where, where you're born doesn't matter so much. I mean, it still matters in the sense that we're still forced to live under these, you know, these institutions, but it, it matters less in terms of how you construct your identity, right? Or yeah. it's just one piece of your identity. So I agree with you that I think technology is not there in the sense of, sure, you know, probably blockchains are the one piece of technology that is able to coordinate collaboration at scale without a central authority, but that doesn't mean that we can still safely or accurately or you know that friendly use blockchains to participate at this kind of jurisdiction, right? I think that this is the beginning of that. That we're not there. I agree with your analysis. I think we're not there yet, but I do think that it's the beginning of that. I think we need to create the networks, for also for this to happen. I think we, you know, we could think about. There is this. Project that is incredible. That what they're trying to do is they're trying to get like 1 billion whatever euros or mm-hmm. dollars, it doesn't really matter, and then get 200 million young people from around the world to vote in a participatory budgeting process on how to execute that billion. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what's beautiful about this is like it's not the money and it's not the participatory process, although it's great. And I would love to mm-hmm. see how that goes. And I, and I want to be involved in that but it's the network you create. You create fabric, social fabric at that scale, and that doesn't disappear. Once you've connected a lot of these people, once they felt part of this collective that goes so beyond their, you know, n- nations, that is something that never goes. It's like unlearning how to read. You can't do it, like right? So so I, I am a very big believer in building this type of projects that create that kind of social fabric at a planetary scale. I think we need to start thinking at that level and funding things like that.
0: That's a great point. And uh, yeah, definitely, you know, bullish there, you know, seeing just the projects that are being created with the blockchain and, you know, whether this is followed with another bear market and whatever the length of the next crypto winter is, you may have that lasting kind of effect, right, of past collaboration across borders?
1: I'm seeing it with the mutual aid groups. I'm seeing it at that scale. Like I think that post-pandemic, all of these mutual aid groups, many of them are going to be like activist burnout, but many of them are going to, and I'm already seeing them, they're transforming themselves from just, let's buy groceries to folks who are quarantined, or, you know, let's do some cash assistance for those who are getting evicted, or food pantries they are already transforming into like those networks are built that social fabric it now exists right and so those collectives those um, groups are not going to disappear they're just going to become advocacy groups they're going to become something else right but they're going to be there and uh, i am very hopeful about that i am i'm 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 an optimist about about that in particular because not only people showing up for each other in times of crisis which we've done over and over, but also these networks that we're creating—that they're—it's like building capacity now yeah. for social tissues and, and activism.
0: Before I take it to profanity, uh, have you watched Boy State? No. Oh, you have to watch Boy State. Um, highly, highly recommended. It's a—it's an Apple documentary about a—I uh, think it's a thousand uh, teenagers from across the United States that come together once a year it's conservatives conservative teenagers that come together once a year uh for a few days to form a government right um in a in a big hotel um and you know a lot of famous uh republicans were part of those boys states uh so i think Cheney and you know maybe not the best examples but <laughs> but a few i i think not even only uh, conservatives i think Cory Booker was was also part of that it's uh, it's it's a really interesting movie uh definitely worth watching and maybe a good segue because we're reaching the end of uh the podcast um you know very briefly i want to talk german politics with you are you following it is it important for europe
1: german politics of course it's important to you for europe
0: maybe it's important but it's so boring that nobody cares or <laughs> Is it good that it's so boring?
1: I think it's good that it's boring. Um, I think Angela Merkel did a great job at being boring, and I think that you know, I lived in Argentina and the United States um, yes. for the past like whatever years. Trust me, boring is great. <laughs> I mean, boring is what we need. I think that um, it's not inspirational, obviously, but I think that again, it's it's the role of government as a uh, more technocratic or bureaucrat aspect of organizing society and um and I think that as drab as that sounds, that is okay right we need to we need that still um so yeah, I'm not following too closely, but you know I'm glad they're there.
0: <laughs> we'll know in two weeks. Um, and then lastly, uh, there's a question I ask everybody on the show, and I think it's very relevant actually to what you're doing, um, or have been doing. And it's a, it's a question around sort of pivot versus iteration. And, you know, looking at the project that you've done and, you know, trying to connect the dots, you know, I really thought that that question with you, uh, you know, may, may resonate more than with other um, people that we have on the show. So it's that idea of, you know, I'm, you know, creating a product, a project, um, and often I feel that people get to this crossroad where they have to decide: Do I just have to keep on iterating because you know I'm actually onto something here and I need more time and more iteration, or is it really time um, to make a, a bigger pivot into a totally different direction um, and just let go um, of what maybe I believe to be the route to success and. Uh, and I'm looking for kind of mental, you know, models or how people come to that decision, you know, once they've taken it, like what led to their decision? Is it internal soul searching? Is it, you know, benchmarking to other people one admires? Is it getting advice from friends and family? Um, is it making lists, you know, with pros and cons? And just wondering if you, you know, in those, you know, steps of, you know, your career and the different projects that you were involved with, I mean, it must have been hard to leave some behind. And, and kind of really pivot into something new. Uh, how did you make those decisions?
1: So, a really good question. So, in general, I have strong beliefs, strong ideas, but very loosely held, right? So, so in general, that's how I operate, right? When, when I believe that something is the right path, I believe it very strongly, and I push for it. But then I'm also easily convinced to go in a different way or to drop it. Right. And Open Collective has has, has had that. Like right? with, you know, we are like, this is, you know, what we need to do and the path forward. And then it's like, this wasn't it by, mm-hmm. you know. So we, I guess, in my role as leader of Open Collective, I I guess I imprinted somehow this idea of having strong beliefs but loosely held to the to the team and to the product. So what I, what I like about, about that, and this is something that is very intuitive to me, like I don't, you know, that this is something that comes natural. I never fall in love fully with ideas or with mm-hmm. products or with features and because I understand there is a big risk in doing that, right? So while I believe it's the, the right thing and I believe it very strongly, I never kind of fall, blindly fall in love with that, right? So we've changed. That said, um, in open collective we've been more on the iterating side for the global strategy and we pivot when things at the implementation level don't work mm-hmm. right so our strategy has remained the same like every year we get together and like re- let's rethink our mission and we always end up with the same mission statement <laughs> like it's just you know and we are honestly very prepared to say like what is our mission let's rethink it and we always end up with the same yeah. but when it comes to you know, feature implementation. We've done a gazillion things, and then we pivoted it very quickly to something radically different. And that's kind of inside the company. And then in like more life decisions about going to Open Collective for me was probably the one decision that uh, was harder for me because I had a lot of baggage, a very public persona, very very public persona around the democracy work, and I had to turn around and say, okay, I'm doing a company that's a for-profit venture. I'm sure it has it's a missions, you know, driven company. And, you know, we're doing, we're doing something good in the world. Like, I honestly believe that. But it has investors, it has equity, right? It has all the things that are, you know, weird for someone like me. And so I guess when I decided to pivot, and um, it, that was a hard pivot from Democracy Earth into Open Collective, I realized that I, I had an audience of one and that was myself. That as long as I could build the narrative for myself, and I really thought about the narrative, I'm like, how am I explaining this to myself? Right? What is the thread? That thread that you mentioned is like the same question that I asked myself in 2015. How are you joining these dots? You know, they're so far away. And I realized that I was the only person that deserved an explanation. And once I realized that, I worked on, on my own narrative for myself. Mm-hmm. And then that was it. Then I just moved on. So, Sometimes it happens to founders or, or, you know, public people or, you know, activists that you feel like you owe a lot of explanation to a lot of people if you're going to pivot. And sometimes you just, it's just yourself you need to convince. And once you realize that, it's a lot easier.
0: Great answer. Thank you so much. Just, you know, last question is, you know, typically we ask around sort of, you know, the founder struggles, you know, kind of like mental health, you know, staying sane in the whole process, staying fit, staying energetic. Are there any things that you can recommend that you do? Any routines, any daily things, uh, no meeting days can be very trivial, um, but often very helpful to people.
1: So yes, I have a ton of life hacks. (laughs) Um, So I definitely exercise every morning. The first thing I do after I ship Roma to school is I do Ten, twenty, half an hour, whatever. But like, I do some exercise. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that that keeps me sane. Um, then I have an open calendar um, that people just book meetings with me. Mm-hmm. But I have like very, like very restrictive slots.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, yeah.
1: Anyone needs something, <laughs> they can book here. If there's nothing for the next month, you yeah. know, that's 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 what it is, right? And then my other more open calendar. For meetings and calls starts like at midday. So I always have the mornings for doing work. Otherwise, yeah. for founders, like you, you are, you know, your chief Zoom officer, you know what I mean? that like, you're gonna spend all day in a, in in a call if if you let. And I think that blocking time is
0: that reminds me of the maker. Sorry to interrupt the maker schedule. Uh you read that post from YC founder Paul Graham. No. Um, oh, that's a great one. Okay. I'll have to send you two things. Um and also for the listeners out there, the maker versus manager schedule was an essay written by Paul Graham um of Y Combinator, which which I think is you know genius. I think I've talked about it already on the show, but I also adhere to it very much. Some people, you know, really cannot operate on a meeting schedule. They need You know, lots of free time blocks because even if you have a day and there's only two meetings, but if they're placed at 10 and 2 p.m., for some people that just disrupts the entire flow of the day so much that, you know, they really suffer productivity from it. So I personally also just have, you know, uh, some days uh, a week, uh, two actually at the moment, depending always on what stage of the project we are in, um, where I try to really not have any external meetings whatsoever. It's just, you know, Maybe, you know, an internal meeting here and there, but um, just have it free um, for actually work.
1: But the other thing that I did very early on, um, and I think that for founders who are not engineers like me that are founders of a tech company, so you have an engineering team, take time off and get someone on the engineering team to do the work that you normally do. So, for example, Mm -hmm. very early on, I used to do all support, onboarding, Mm -hmm. paying expenses when there was three of us for Mm. Open Collective. I essentially did everything that wasn't like writing code, but then I would always take two weeks off um, Mm -hmm. in the holidays. And then one of my other two co-founders that were doing engineering had to reply to support, pay expenses and do that. That's how I got everything done, right? Because when I got back, I had like systems for automating (laughs) everything.
0: (laughs) That's great. Little hack. I love that.
1: Yes, I still do it to (laughs) this day.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. i remember that. All right, Pia, thank you so much um, for sharing your time. And um, we hopefully speak again and maybe also, you know, get you to one of our physical, you know, in real life uh, type of gatherings soon. So all the best to you. Thank you. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Tour On Air podcast. Allow me to briefly tell you about a new product called Club. Club is an online community that hosts cohort-based learning programs on things such as how to found a company, how to invest into startups, crypto, and digital transformation. You can find out more on tourclub.com, and that is Club with a K. If you enjoy these conversations, please do us a favor and rate us on your favorite app. The data monkey needs to be fed. And don't forget to subscribe. To not miss out on our next episodes, where we will be sharing more unquarantined ideas and learnings from leaders across the field. We are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Podcast, Castro, Overcast, and Spotify. And many thanks to Pia Mancini for sharing her knowledge and ideas with all of us.